Welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah Dong, your host and a MedPeds ID fellow. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and chat with ID discussants to learn more about high-yield ID topics. My co-host today is Dr. Cesar Berto. He is a chief resident at Jacoby Medical Center and Albert Einstein College of Medicine, but is now an incoming ID fellow at the combined Massachusetts General and Brigham and Women's Hospital ID Fellowship Program. Joining us as our discussant is Dr. Shweta Anjan. Dr. Anjan is a transplant ID physician at the Miami Transplant Institute. She is an assistant professor in clinical medicine and the associate program director of the Transplant ID Fellowship Program at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. I'm so glad you guys are here. We always start with our one question as a cultured podcast. We'd love to hear about a little piece of culture that you enjoyed recently or brought you some happiness. Sure. Um, One of the things that I recently enjoyed was a musical, Broadway, Come From Away. It's actually a Canadian musical about uh, a real history of the 38 planes that uh, suddenly during 9-11 had to um, land in a very small town in Canada. And it tells the events of how those passengers faced this. Um, it's actually on Apple TV too. So it was really, really nice, very well executed and uh, uh, very sentimental. Hey, hi, Sarah and Cesar. Um, I think I'd have to say... A little piece of culture I've enjoyed recently would have to be like a combination of K-pop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're you talking like, my language. <laughs> you know, I've always been to play all the pop music during like all those um, Peloton sessions. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually made me Google all of them. So we're making progress here. Yeah. Well, you can share, you can share any of those playlists with me. That sounds like something I would love. <laughs> Um, well, today's consult question is about recommendations for working up a cavitary lung lesion. Uh, so I will hand it over. Okay. So t- today we have the case of a 60-year-old woman, a status post-lung transplantation, who has been admitted for uh, two weeks of fever, asthenia, productive cough, and exertional dyspnea. Uh, his past medical history is remarkable for uh, bilateral lung transplantation since month, months ago due to severe emphysema. She is CMB uh, donor positive, recipient negative, and is currently on prophylaxis. Her current medications include uh, triple immunosuppressive therapy, uh, tacrolimus, mycophenolate, and prednisone. And in terms of prophylaxis, she is on valcyclovir and atovaquone. Her social history um, Remarkable is that she lives in Las Vegas, Nevada. She is currently retired. She spends her weekends uh, hiking. She does not have any pets or no recent travels. The physical exam of these patients um, shows a tachycardic patient with decreased breath sounds in the right lower lobe. Uh, and additionally, on the physical exam, we're able to find a tender one by one centimeter ulcerated lesion of the left ankle without any period in secretion. 
Um, the CAT scan of this patient shows a right lower log consolidation with a two centimeter nodular lesion and peripheral cavitation. So how would you approach to this patient who is presented with lung and skin findings? Okay, that's a very interesting case. Cesar. Thank you for that. Um, so to begin with, I know like for the purposes of the session, um, this is the social history and everything you've provided, but I would definitely request for more history in terms of where was she born and raised? Has she lived in Nevada all her life? Or did she find herself moving either like within the U.S. or internationally? That would put her at risk for different endemic fungi, which is the first little bell that went off in my head when you said skin lesion and a cavitary lung lesion, you know? Um, and then some more information about her underlying condition that led up to the transplant. And she has emphysema, but why would... Um, a female have emphysema? Is there a history of smoking? You know, any other medical history we need to think about, autoimmune conditions, for example. Also, um, you didn't cover drug use or marijuana use. You know, sure, like most transplant patients are very careful with regards to marijuana smoking, but it's still um, something I would like to know. So coming up with a more broad differential diagnosis, and then we can you know, narrow it down to specific features of our patient. The way I think through things is consider infections and, no, and non-infectious causes also. So you have like a table with one side that says infections and the other side that has non-infectious causes. When you move through infectious causes, you look at the, the big four, bacterial, viral, fungal, parasitic and try to see which one would fit this picture. So we're looking at an immunocompromised host. So if you had to think of bacterial causes here, you can say like Staph aureus and MRSA can cause cavitary lesions. And if there's bacteremia and then hematogenous spread, you know, there could also be some skin lesions or cutaneous abscesses resulting from that. And then other, um, other bacteria like rhodococcus, which is not very really common, and she doesn't have a history of contact with animals, but it's still possible in transplant patients. And consider gram-negative bacteria like Pseudomonas and Klebsiella that can also cause more of a um, ichthyma when it comes to a skin lesion um, and rarely cavitary lesions. The big thing to also consider is mycobacteria, non-TB mycobacteria especially. Um, I'm assuming this patient would have had screening for TB pre-transplant. Hopefully there was a quantifron that was checked in negative, but it is still possible for her to either have donor-derived TB or have um, a new TB infection. So keep you know, tuberculosis, non-TB mycobacteria also on top of the list. And in a different part of the country, I would say consider zoonoses like tularemia. You know, she obviously has had no contact with rabbits, so I wouldn't put that high on my list. But it's usually the board question where you have pulmonary symptoms and this ulceral glandular lesion somewhere in the hand or leg, um, and you have to consider rabbits and tularemia. All right, so that's bacterial. I think my favorite out of this will be working through the fungal etiologies. So she is a lung transplant patient. Um, a question I would have is, was she on any antifungal prophylaxis? Because some centers choose to put their lung transplant patients on prophylaxis for 6 to 12 months. 
I know we do that here in Miami. They're on war econosole prophylaxis for 12 months. That being said, just because they're on prophylaxis does not mean that they cannot have breakthrough infections or fungal infections in general because of subtherapeutic, you know, antifungal levels. So when you think about fungal infections in these patients, I would consider aspergillosis as my number one, and then other mold. Mucor would be rare, and she'd be a lot more sicker if she had that and it was disseminated. Um, Fusarium also causes a skin rash. Another bold question, one of the uh, few that actually grows in blood culture. Um, And the other endemic fungi, for example, cryptococcus. can definitely cause pulmonary cryptococcus with the cavitary lesion and skin rashes. And um, specific to where she is in the southwest, I would say even coccidioidomycosis. She is in Nevada, which puts her at risk. She's out hiking. Um, She's definitely had exposure to um, air and soil, I would say so. And uh, coming to endemic fungi, so you think about histoplasma and blastomycosis also that have similar presentations with pulmonary and skin involvement. The map for the geographic burden of histoplasma has been changing. So initially, while we classically learned that it's mostly like the Midwest and the Ohio and Mississippi Valley, now it is also seen in the South. So it's also there in the Southeast, in Florida, in Texas. And it seems to be moving more to the rest, the new geographic distribution map for histoplasma. So that's it with the fungal. Um, viral etiologies, it's uncommon for any of the viruses to cause a cavitary lesion and skin lesions. And sometimes very rarely, maybe a herpes virus can do that, but that's unlikely. Parasites. So one of the parasites I respect is strongyloides, you know, just because of what it's capable of doing. So it can cause uh, pulmonary lesions, like a consolidation, and can cause a skin rash. But a skin rash, it's not generally usually not a nodule. It's more of a diffuse rash, or it looks like purpura, really. And other pulmonary parasites, like schistosomiasis, you know, the lung flukes, you can see um, pulmonary hydatidsis, unlikely in this lady. I think that's it with the parasites. Um, and then coming to the non-infectious causes. With her being a recent lung transplant and being out in the sun, I would say there's a high chance of um, skin cancer or melanoma, which would present with a lung lesion and a skin lesion. Also think about primary um, pulmonary adenocarcinoma with lung mets in the malignancy section. Possibility of autoimmune diseases like sarcoid or granulomatosis with polyangitis. Though autoimmune conditions would be subdued because she's already on immunosuppressants. So I'd be surprised if it was autoimmune because she's already on like tacrolimus and prednisone, which should, um, you know, dull down the symptoms from that. So to narrow it down to our patients, so you presented lung transplant patients who are six months from transplant. She lives in Nevada, which is just dry climate with occasional winds. She likes hiking and spending time outdoors. So I would say our patient is at risk for a bacteria or a fungal infection she could have inhaled. So my top three in her would be a non-TB mycobacteria. So it could be M. abscesses or M. avium or M. cansasii. Um, a fungal infection like aspergillus, coxi, or cryptococcus, and um, nocardia. 
Malignancy is still a possibility. And of course, we will know more as we start to work this patient up. Now, approach to like the early steps of uh, approach to getting to a diagnosis. Start with blood cultures. That will definitely help us. Um, and non-invasive fungal markers. You can learn a lot from the serum, you know, aspergillus-galactomannan, cryptococcal antigen, coccidiides antibody. And um, the best part about having skin lesions in transplant patients is that you can get them biopsied. It's like the one thing I tell every fellow and every medical student I can catch hold of. If there's a rash, you biopsy that. It'll give us so many answers and, and fast answers that um, even cultures cannot get back to you that quickly. So I would say push for invasive testing, call dermatology, biopsy the rash, send it for culture and for pathology. Let both the micro lab and pathology know what you're looking for, what you're considering in your patients, um, especially so that path can work on special stains for AFB and uh, fungal staining. And then after the skin, I would say um, go after the pulmonary nodule, consider invasive testing for the pulmonary nodule and the cavity lesion. Uh, request for bronchoscopy and BAL. Thank you, Dr. Njan. That was a, a very, very complete differential. And so to complete some of that history information, the patient is a former smoker, and the reason for transplantation was that. In terms of her pre-transplant um, screening, basically everything was negative, including a quantiferon, except for the, the CMB that is um, a high risk, and uh, she is on prophylaxis. In terms of the workup that was done in the hospital, so, of course, blood cultures were collected and fungal markers were sent. She was started empirically on vancomycin and cefepin. And as you said, a skin biopsy was pursued. We got the result of the skin biopsy, and it shows a gram-positive branching and bedded rods surrounded by extensive inflammation. Cultures of the biopsy were also sent, and they were in progress. While waiting of these cultures, what do you think should be the best antibiotic regimen, and how do these change your differential? Okay, so the gram-positive branching and beaded rods definitely help. So if you had stopped at gram-positive rods, I would say, hmm, is this rhodococcus, you know, streptomyces, NTM? Um, but when you say gram-positive branching and beaded, kind of forced to think nocardia. <laughs> So I guess pathology did a great job at that and like, you know, helped us out there saying, okay, all right. So we narrow it down from all of the broad differential diagnosis to there is a 99% chance this is nocardia. The 1% we still have to wait for the culture. In transplant patients, I have come to learn that you should expect curveballs and plan ahead for them. So I would say, okay, I'm comfortable knowing that this is nocardia so we can plan our treatment around that. So in solid organ transplant and immunocompromised patients, honestly, nocardia is not that common. The incidence is less than 4%. Um, our patient lives in the United States Southwest where the incidence of nocardia is higher, so which is why this makes it more likely in her. And there are other risk factors that you need to consider. She's a lung transplant patient. And heart and lung transplant patients are at higher risk compared to liver and kidney for nocardia infections. She is six months post-transplant. So she kind of fits the timeline where the, the highest chances of having um, nocardia infections are one to two years post-transplant. Um, though the bacteria doesn't read the guidelines in the timeline. So it's still possible that you can see it a little earlier. You can see it after two years. You can see it at a later point in life. 
especially if they have recently been treated for rejection and they had you know, augmentation in their immunosuppression. So certain immunosuppressants also increase the risk factors for nocardia, I would say. There have been various case control studies done, a large one here in the U.S. and another one from Europe, that in solid organ transplantations that identified that the risk factors include high doses of corticosteroids, um, a high serum concentration of calcineurin inhibitors, and prior CMV infection, like in the past six months. In addition, older age, prolonged ICU stay are also considered to be risk factors for nocardia infection. So this is specific to solid organ transplant. But remember, like other stem cell transplants, leukemics, lymphoma, um, patients receiving monoclonal antibodies like rituximab and infliximab, they are also at risk for endocardia, especially, I think, with infliximab. They have, they have been reports where there are um, endocardia infections in like, patients being treated for rheumatoid arthritis. So consider other immunosuppressants while you're at it. So typical clinical manifestations of endocardia, um, I would say the primary site of infection is the lung. You know, you inhale it, so that's why it's going straight to your lung. Um, and in some cases, there is cutaneous involvement, either alone, so the isolated cutaneous involvement, if there is trauma, um, and, you know, people who are into gardening and landscaping, where you just have a single nodule, and hopefully it stays contained there. Or it could be from hematogenous spread from the primary site to the skin. So you could have that. Uh, pulmonary infection, and then, of course, CNS infection. Um, Nocardia seems to have affinity for the brain, and due to the tropism, there are uh, a predominant number of cases in solid organ transplant that have disseminated nocardial infections. When it comes to diagnosis, I would say we absolutely need it uh, on culture. Growth on culture is a must to help in diagnosis. In cases where it is not going on culture, um, consider molecular testing like PCR testing or like a 16S RNA um, testing where you can send it to a reference lab. I actually honestly saw a similar case where uh, the patient was initially diagnosed with organizing pneumonia because it didn't go on culture for weeks. Um, and the treatment <laughs> the treatment's completely different because they get steroids for organizing pneumonia versus nocardia treatment. So it's something to think about. While you're waiting for the cultures, first of all, get adequate samples. Send the skin biopsy for culture, send the BAL for culture. Whatever specimen you can find that's a source of infection, you send it for culture. Let the micro lab know. Communicate with your micro lab because they're your best friends. Tell them you're considering nocardia so they can do a modified acid fasting. They can incubate it for longer because sometimes it might grow soon or sometimes it might choose to grow three to four weeks later. So they can hold your specimens and you know incubate them for longer. Also, there's a role where they can consider certain selective media to help nocardia grow faster. So communicate with them about your potential diagnosis and that will help you. And then we're coming to imaging. Imaging for nocardia is important. What you described in our patient CT scan, where you said... She had a right lower lobe consolidation with a two centimeter nodular lesion and peripheral cavity. So it's almost typical for um, nocardia and other infections also, unfortunately. But an irregular nodule, large mass, like a third of them have cavitation, can easily be considered to be malignancy. Um, that's what you typically see on a CT chest. Remember with 
not just with nocardia, I would also say with fungal infections and non-TB mycobacteria, remember to stage your infection so you know the severity. So staging of disease involves imaging of the chest, sinuses, and brain to, to understand the extent of involvement. So in this case, you know, just to see if the patient has no CNS symptoms, no headaches, vision problems, you can start with the CT brain and, and then ask for an MRI brain, um, or you could just get the MRI first. Perfect. So actually, a more careful review system of these patients reveals some intermittent headache. A patient underwent a brain MRI, and it showed a well-defined, very small re-enhancing lesion in a temporal lobe with minimal surrounding edema. So knowing this, how could this affect your management and what changes could you recommend? Hmm. Okay, so what we know now is that there is lung, skin, and CNS involvement. So this patient definitely has a disseminated process, likely disseminated nocardia, because this involvement is more than more than two sites. This can be life-threatening with a high mortality rate, mortality as high as 20%. So we would need to act fast. One, establish from a neurosurgery standpoint, how safe is the edema and the lesion? Because a typical ring-enhancing lesion would mean, um, could also be toxoplasma. But get neurosurgery involved. Is there any role for an intervention? Is there something to evacuate or drain? And is there anything to be done for the surrounding edema and inflammation? So starting there, I believe this patient is on vancomycin and cefepine empirically. Uh, vancomycin and cefepine empirically, yes, correct. All right. So we're thinking most likely this patient has nocardia. But until I know more, I might also want to cover for NCM. But the good thing is that the treatment for nocardia sort of covers some, some NTM also. So the first line of treatment for nocardia, like the backbone has to be a sulfonamide like Bactrim. So you start off, include Bactrim in your regimen. And then in addition, the other first line options or the drugs you can add would be, you know, imipenem, amikacin, linazolid, depending on the severity of disease. So if it is just cutaneous, you can get away with monotherapy with Bactrim. If it is limited to the lung with imaging confirming that there's no brain or sinus involvement, you can also get away with monotherapy with Bactrim. In our patient, we actually know she has disseminated disease. So I would say combination therapy, um, depending on what she can tolerate. I would say Bactrim, imipenem. And if the symptoms progress or don't improve within a week, also add on a case in IV and monitor her. Now, this is the best case scenario, but what do you do in terms of Bactrim allergies or, you know, patients who are intolerant to Bactrim? Um, if they have a serious allergy to Bactrim, consider desensitization. But even after that, if patients are intolerant to it, then you would have to consider treatments such as linazolid. So you can try imipenem and linazolid, which has proven to be effective multiple times. In fact, linazolid is a great great drug with the bioavailability being 100%. Ease of administration with both IV and PO options, you know, transitioning would be easy. It achieves good CNS and lung tissue concentration, so it would be perfect. The only problem is the duration of treatment and toxicities might, you, you'd have to factor in because when you're 
thinking about treating nocardia, you're thinking about prolonged treatment. And with linezolid, you would have bone marrow suppression, thrombocytopenia, peripheral neuropathy, you know, uh, serotonin syndrome to consider. It, it's a good option, but a short-term option, you would still need something else to complete the duration of treatment. So empirically, um, I would choose Bactrim imipenem with or without amikacin, depending on how the patient progresses. Imipenem would also cover some NTM. Um, and if there's a strong feeling um, that this is probably NTM, you can also add a macrolide uh, while you wait for the final culture. So while we're managing this patient empirically, you do need to emphasize on the cultures because a species identification and antimicrobial susceptibility is absolutely necessary. The species of nocardia vary by geographical region. So the species that's predominant in Europe is not predominant in the U.S. And even within the U.S., every state has a predominant species. So you would have to know that. And every species differs in terms of pathogenicity um, and antibiotic susceptibility. We have empiric treatment, but there are certain species of nocardia. I would say the dangerous ones are um, Farsinica, which uh, almost always causes disseminated disease. It can be resistant to Bactrim, Imipenem, third-generation cephalosporins. And there's also, I think, Pseudobrasiliensis that's also can be resistant to, to um, Bactrim. And abscesses sometimes, uh, nocardia abscesses has variable sensitivity to um, imipenem and bactrim. So like knowing these things, it's very important that we uh, get down to the details. Like, what is the species? What is the antibiotic susceptibility? And then we can narrow our treatment from there. Great. So the culture was obtained by the team and it was finally identified by the micro lab as nocardia abscessus, which was sensitive to imipenem and sensitive to bactrim. So the patient was transitioned to imipenem and bactrim as per ID recommendations. Um, so in this particular case, how long would you, would you treat this patient? Okay, that's great. That's great that we had nocardia abscesses and it's sensitive to imipenem bactrim, so we're winning. So talking about disseminated disease, so I would say a minimum of six months, six to 12 months is what the guideline says, but I would say at least six, more likely 12, push towards 12. Even the 12 months would depend on clinical progression. So this patient will likely become your best friend, so you need to know everything about them at this point. Um, because this patient's going to be followed by you in clinic for the next 12 months. So for ease of communication, make sure you have emails and phone numbers um, and a way to get a hold of labs. She's going to need clinical monitoring, I would say at least one, three, six months after diagnosis um, for both for drug toxicity and also repeat imaging, you know, repeat the MRI of the brain, the CT chest, see where we are at with radiological resolution. After completion of treatment, she may or may not need secondary prophylaxis, um, but you would still need to follow up with imaging at least at six months and 12 months post-stopping treatment. Great. So in the case of this patient, uh, he reminds on therapy and was able to tolerate it. One of the things that we wanted um, you to expand a little bit more is the impact of uh, a PJP prophylaxis, um, usually on Bactrin. In this case, the patient was on a tobacone in terms of the, the prevention also of, of nocardia infections? Right. No, and that's a good question. So your patient here was an atovacone, 
Bactrim does have a role. So Bactrim used for PJP prophylaxis, the dosing is either single strand daily or double strand three times a week. It does have a role in primary prevention of myocardia. However, breakthrough infections have been reported. And this has been an ongoing debate about, you know, is it because of the dosing that the uh, dosing for PJP prophylaxis is insufficient to ensure complete primary prevention of myocardia? Um, And there are studies that show patients who have these breakthrough infections on Bactrim for PJP prophylaxis, the isolates can still be susceptible to Bactrim. And then there are a few instances where they're resistant to Bactrim, so that would explain the breakthrough infection. Um, but I would say, yes, when possible, and if the patient tolerates it, um, Bactrim for PJP prophylaxis is still preferred um, and will definitely offer some you know, protection against myocardia. Again, the data on both dosing and duration of Bactrim for primary prevention and secondary prophylaxis for myocardia is um, limited, I would say. We don't really have, you know, any head-to-head trials or uh, prospective studies in this area. Most of our information is from retrospective studies and case reports. In fact, there are, I think there's a study from Mayo Clinic from a few years ago where they looked at recurrence rates in patients while they were on secondary prophylaxis, and there was still a 5% recurrence rate on their secondary prophylaxis of Bactrim single strength daily. And they identified the risk factor for this recurrence as mostly lung transplant patients, chronic lung problems, um, and if for some reason they received less than six months of treatment. So even on the single strength daily, you know, they can have recurrence. I think that might be why our ASD guideline recommends Bactrim double strength daily for secondary prophylaxis in these patients, but there is no data to back that up. Yeah, because I feel like this question, it always comes up when there's a case of nocardia. And I think emphasizing that you can still have it regardless of the isolate is susceptible or if they're on daily prophylaxis is such an important point. Because I think sometimes when teams call us, they sort of say like, oh, well, there's no way it could be X, Y, and Z because they're on prophylaxis. And it's the same with fungal disease that we use that as a piece of information, but can't really take something off the table. No, absolutely. That's always a problem. I would say the take-home message for nocardia is that it does not respect facial planes, okay? Like, it's a very disrespectful bug. It can spread right <laughs> through your lungs. You know, it can go go through, spread through the chest wall from its primary site of infection. Yeah. So no respect for facial planes. There is hematogenous spread. <laughs> like, who does that? <laughs> uh, I think that's most of the case we have. But I wanted to make sure there weren't other pearls or or things that we should keep in mind with no cardiac. I feel like we talk about it a lot and we see it occasionally, but uh, at least for me, I feel like the cases are actually somewhat s- spread out. No, that's true. Like, um, like, like as I said before, like our incidence in solid organ transplant is low, but there's a good chance that you might see an increase, especially now that there's an increase in the number of transplants overall increase in the number of lung transplants. So there are a lot more immunocompromised people in our community, you know, Um, and also global warming. Like it or not, it's going to become a big infectious disease problem with the rise in temperatures and providing this like favorable environment for all these bacteria, fungi, and parasites to 
grow and multiply, um, you're going to see a lot of these infections. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on the show and talking about nocardia, but also thinking this is a really nice case to think about brain and skin and then brain and lung, a lot of the combos that we see on um, ID console. And of course, cavitary lung lesions, which are one of my favorite ID <laughs> differentials. So, <laughs> well, Sarah, Thank you for having us, Sarah. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Shweta and Cesar for joining in Febrile today. Our usual disclaimer that all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences, but cases are constructed or significantly altered and de-identified for learning purposes. Please don't forget to check out the website, febrilepodcast.com, where you will find our consult notes, which are written compliments to the show with links to references, our library of ID infographics, and a link to our merch store. So please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows, or if you just want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.